Thank you all for joining us. Let's start by praying. Heavenly Father, um, as I give this message, I pray first for myself. Please help my mind to be sharp. Please help my communication to be clear. Help my words to be true. And if I say anything false, please in some way correct it in the minds of those who hear it. And if I miss anything, please help to fill the gaps. I also pray for those who are listening. Please help their minds to be attuned. Please give them the kind of mental strength to be able to follow along, the clarity to be able to understand, and the strength to be able to internalize it and act um, according to the truths that I've said throughout their lives. Amen. All right, well, let me introduce myself. My name is Chris Tweet. I am a professor at CNU. I teach philosophy. Um, when people hear this, they often think of psychology, and philosophy and psychology are importantly different, so I should maybe say a little something about the discipline that I teach, because the approach that I'm going to be giving here uses my specialization in that discipline. So here I'll introduce philosophy. Philosophy is the discipline that uses reasons and arguments to find answers to questions about ultimate value. And by ultimate value, the questions about ultimate value, I should give some examples because it's kind of unclear as it is. Uh, here's one question. What kind of thing are we? Are we just this a whole bunch of matter and atoms and material stuff and gunk that is united by some sort of physical forces along with everything else? And so there's nothing that's special about us. We are no different from another material object or perhaps another kind of animal. Or is there something valuable about us? But something more valuable than the arrangement of those things. Maybe something immaterial about us that makes us valuable, like a soul or a spirit or a mind. Here's another question. Is our life in this world valuable? Is there any significance to us being here? Or are we the product of some blind evolutionary force that just happened to be thrown along together and by chance here we are? And so there's no mission for us here on Earth. There's no value. Or, here's another question. Is there something valuable about other people and my relationships with them? In other words, do I have any special responsibilities to them? Is there a way that I ought to act in this world? Or is there nothing to that? Is it just a whole bunch of social pressure to act in certain kinds of ways? That's ethics. And another one is, is there something valuable outside of this world, a being who created everything? sustains everything in existence, something to whom we owe our lives and our worship. These are the kinds of questions that philosophers ask, and they also ask, how can we know any of this at all? Well, here's what philosophers do. These are really big, hard questions to ask and really hard to answer. What we do is we find the ways that other disciplines argue. How do, how do people, how do historians argue? How do scientists argue for their positions? How do mathematicians argue for theirs? They have specific content they're arguing about, mathematical stuff, scientific stuff, historical stuff. What philosophers do is take that content away and look at the form and structure of those arguments to find out what makes an argument good and what makes an argument bad. And then when we find the good kinds of arguments, now we put new content, there, content in there in order to find out the answers to those questions that I just asked. Now we can only find out a little bit, right? We can't have extensive knowledge of what God would be like, for example. 
And so we can supplement that knowledge with scripture. You might have noticed that some of the questions that I asked are, answers, are answered in scripture, and that's true. Scripture is the text that gives us the testimony of God about answers to questions about ultimate value. These are two different ways of knowing the same thing. One way, we can look at the world and reason that way. Another way, we can look at scripture and receive testimony of God about the answers to these questions. It's like this, if an artist were to create art, we can learn a lot about that artist just by looking at that artist's art. But we can also hear what the artist has to say about their art. And sometimes what the artist says about their art can be better understood if we're familiar with the art already. And so philosophy can help us to supplement our understanding about God and about scripture. We can use both methods to come to the same truths. So what I'm going to do first is to talk about what faith is, and I'm going to give a philosophical approach. I won't give all the argument and argumentation steps, and my students are saying, whew, so I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to give you the conclusions, and we're going to take it step by step, and then I'm going to give a scriptural approach to, to give us a full understanding of what faith is, and with two methods, philosophy and scripture go hand in hand to give us theology, which is the study of God. Okay, so my topic is living by faith. And to figure out the answer to how to live by faith, we're going to address two questions. The first is, what is faith? And the second is, how do we live by it? All right, so first we're going to talk about what faith is. Uh, to do this, I'm going to introduce the topic with a quote by G.K. Chesterton. Here it is. A man who thinks himself a chicken is to himself as ordinary as a chicken. It's only because we see the irony of this idea that we think him even amusing. Look, if you think you're a chicken, you're going to maybe flap your arms. You're going to do this a little bit. You might try to eat food from the ground. I tried that in practice, and it didn't work very well. I'm not going to do it. But when you do that, it doesn't seem weird. Because if I think I'm a chicken and I'm doing this stuff, that's just how I do things, right? Nothing weird. But you think it's funny. You're laughing because you know I'm not a chicken. You see this from the outside. We have our schedules in our everyday lives. We do things like normal. This is a, a college student's schedule. I don't know if you can see it. Informed by a meta-analysis of about 1,000 quantitative surveys. Just kidding. We have our schedule. Maybe yours is different. Maybe you wake up in the morning and get your breakfast and you go to work. And you do your work thing. You get home and you make dinner. Maybe you relax in the evening. Who knows what that looks like. You look forward to the weekend when you can go out and I don't know, do yard work, hang out with your friends or whatever. And you go through your life and you have your routines. You're used to how things go. You come to church on Sundays or watch it online. And that's how things are. But what if our doing that is just like the chicken man who thinks he's a chicken? The chicken man, to that chicken man, eating his food and flapping his wings didn't seem so unusual. And to us, our schedules don't seem unusual. When the chicken man was seen from the outside, 
it seems unusual. There seems something weird about it. Are we doing things with our lives that, when viewed from the outside, would seem to be kind of unusual? What would this be like? What would it be like to look at our life from the outside? Here's an image from the best video game ever made, Super Mario Brothers 3. Mario here is uh, shooting fireballs at this piranha. And when we look at this, this is a two-dimensional game. It just goes from side to side. It's just got its height and its width. But we say it's two-dimensional because we know the world in three dimensions. When we look at Mario there, we can say that's only two of those three dimensions. But to Mario, his world is two-dimensional. He doesn't go outside of the screen, at least not in this game. He doesn't go, outside, he doesn't go in three dimensions. So what about our world? Still getting used to the slideshow thing. What happens when we view our world from the outside? What if our entire world, as we know it, is just part of a bigger picture in the same way that Mario's two-dimensional world is just a small part of our three-dimensional picture? If we see our world as a small part of something much bigger, things might be different. Maybe our schedule will be different. If that chicken man saw what he was doing from the outside, maybe he would start behaving differently. So let's find out what would happen. What would happen if we saw this world from the outside? To illustrate that, let's look at this. This is a basketball court. And it's commonly used to play basketball. Here's some people playing basketball. When you play basketball on a basketball court, what sorts of things do you care about? You got to know where the basketball hoops are, right? The whole point of the game is to, to shoot this ball through the basketball hoop. So you have to know where those are. You have to know where the backboard is. You have to know where the out-of-bounds lines are, right? You care a lot about that because you don't want to step out of bounds. It'll give you a turnover. You care about the paint, paint being the, you know, the area in front of the basketball hoop because if you're on defense, you can't be in there for more than three seconds or there's a penalty. You care about the lines and the basketball hoop and the paint. Here's the same basketball court. It's being used for a different purpose. Here it's being used for an emergency, an evacuation. What do you care about? Care about where the outlets are? Care about where the nearest exits are? You care what the square footage is from one wall to another, so you know how many cots you can fit in there. You know what you don't care about? The lines, the basketball hoops. In fact, the basketball hoops that were in the basketball playing scenario, something you cared about aiming for. In this emergency scenario, they're an obstacle. It would be better if they weren't there. One less thing to worry about getting in the way. So if we look at our world from the outside, if we see it as different, what sort of things would change? What sort of things do we care about when we live our world in our world from the inside, 
that we wouldn't care about when we see it differently, when we see it from the outside. Because how you see things influences what you care about. Faith is a way of seeing the world. There's the philosophical stuff. Now we want to know a little bit more. We want to know what this sort of faith involves. Let's add some content to it. And to do that, we can look to Scripture to supplement our understanding. Before we get into the Scripture passage, I'm going to give a little bit of background. So we're going to start in Matthew 8. Jesus get, just got done healing a lot of people, including Peter's mother-in-law. And Scripture doesn't say anything about whether Peter actually wanted his mother-in-law to be healed. Jesus just did it. Saw her there, grabbed her hand, she was healed. Okay, so mother-in-law uh, mother was healed. He also healed a whole bunch of other people crowding around him. He was healing all over the place. And then he said, I need to decompress. I need to get out of these crowds because this is a little bit too much. So disciples, get a boat ready. I'm just going to cross over the sea. I need a place to relax without tons of people clamoring for my attention. As the disciples are getting the boat ready, people start coming and questioning him, trying to trap him with these sorts of questions. Jesus answers the questions, and he's like, whew, let's get on the boat. He gets on the boat, and the boat goes out a ways onto the sea, and Jesus is exhausted and falls asleep. So he's just been through a lot. He just needs to take a nap at this point. So here we go. When Jesus got into the boat, the disciples followed him onto it. After a while, a great storm arose on the sea. The boat was being battered by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. Again, he's exhausted, right? The disciples woke Jesus up, though, saying, Save us! We're going to die! All right. I stopped here for a reason instead of doing, doing more, because I wanted to give a little commentary here. So what are the disciples thinking here? Disciples are thinking Jesus is falling asleep on the job. He healed all these people. He's answering all these questions. He is the Messiah who's going to save us. But, oh, it's all going to end right here because Jesus can't even stay awake. We've got to help him out a little bit. We're going to wake him up. You're the person who was supposed to save us, remember? Do it now. Don't fall asleep on the job. Jesus replied, you have little faith. Why are you afraid? So this tells us two things. First, they didn't have enough faith. Their actions revealed that they didn't have enough faith. They didn't see Jesus' mission on earth from the outside. All they cared about was their lives there. They thought that Jesus really didn't have the kind of power he needed to ensure that they, the mission was going to be complete. They thought they needed to do something. And if Jesus, if they did have enough faith, the disciples wouldn't have been afraid. There would be no reason to be afraid. If they really saw Jesus as having enough power to fulfill his mission, despite the waves, then they would have seen the waves as a mere obstacle, something that just can be overcome. It would have been a wild ride on that boat. But it would have been the kind of ride you get at an amusement park when you're on a roller coaster. 
When you're on a roller coaster, you're assured you're going to be safe. You're not afraid. You get the jostling. But you're fine. You get a thrill. They weren't getting a thrill out of the, out of the waves. They were genuinely afraid. Then Jesus got up, told the wind and waves to stop, and they became perfectly calm. Now here, I don't think it was Jesus being like, Wind and waves, stop. I think it was more like, calm down, and he fell asleep. Probably more like that. And then, in this groggy state, saying, you have little faith, why are you afraid? Calm down, goes to sleep. Those little words made everything instantly calm. It blew the disciples away, and they said, What kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now, this is a weird reaction, right? I mean, what did they think they were doing by waking Jesus up? I mean, Jesus, save us. What did they expect him to do except to calm the waves? And then when he does it, they're surprised? All right, that's really weird. I don't get it, right? There must be some sort of disconnect between, I don't know, what what they're feeling and what they're thinking or something like that. But here's one thing we do know. They've learned that the wind and the waves obey him. Right? They've seen it. They've seen Jesus with a simple word make everything clear. All right. And then we're going to fast forward six chapters in Matthew. So here we are in chapter 17 now. So here, Jesus just got done feeding 5,000 people. And when you pass around baskets of fish and bread for 5,000 people and you're Jesus, it's not like everyone's like, hey, let's just hang out with our friends and talk. I mean, Jesus is there, right? So people are talking to Jesus. They're asking him questions. And once again, he's he's just the star of the party. There's like a reception line of people who are waiting to talk to him. And so people get done talking to Jesus. He gets really tired. He sends them away in the evening. And he tells the disciples, hey, I want to do that boat thing again. Right? This is familiar. I want to get out on that boat. I want to get away from the crowds. We'll create some water. We'll have some water to create some distance between me and these crowds. Um, But this time Jesus says, you go out on your own. I'm going to pray for a little while. I'm just going to be on my, I don't even, not even with the disciples, right? Don't bother me and ask me to save you this time. I'm just going to be on my own and I'm going to pray. So Jesus prays until late. And then he starts walking out to the boat on the water. Uh, the disciples are having a hard time. The, the wind is contrary. The waves are battering the, the, the waves are battering the opposite way that the boat needs to go. So they're having a tough time there at night. Jesus comes walking to them and they think it's a ghost walking on this water. And uh, Jesus says, don't worry, it's me. Don't be afraid. I remember last time, six chapters ago, Jesus said, why are you afraid? This time he's saying, I'm reminding you, don't be afraid, remember? Have that kind of faith. I think we have a, we have a picture of the event here. There we go. It's like you're really there, I know. I, I do commissioned artwork in case you want a personal profile or something.
Peter said to Jesus, If that is you, Jesus, remember he said, It's I, it's me, don't be afraid. If that is you, Jesus, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, why did Peter say, Tell me to come to you? Maybe he thought ghosts couldn't react, right? Maybe. Like, just be sure you're not a ghost. See if you can react to me. Tell me to come to you. You know, if you're not a ghost, blink twice, sort of thing. All right. Uh, and Jesus said, come here. Come on. So Peter got out of the boat, walking on the water toward Jesus. Now, this is great, because remember, Peter was on that boat when Jesus said, you have little faith, why are you afraid? Here, Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. And Peter's like, I got it. Remember, I believe that the wind and the waves obey you. So look, waves. Remember, the wind is contrary. The waves are battering against Here's waves. I know they can obey you. Let me show you how much faith I have. And so Peter walks out of the boat onto the waves to say, I know you've got control of these waves. But seeing the wind, good, good job, Peter. You got the waves part not the wind part. Seeing the wind, Peter became frightened. He became afraid. And as he began to sink, he cried out, help! So it saved me. Help! I imagine like he started, he was sinking really quick. He's like, oh, help! And Jesus reached out real quick and grabbed him and said, you have little faith. Ah, see? You have little faith again, because last time you saw that the wind and waves obeyed me. Here you got the wave part, but not the wind part. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter did, he just is not internalized that this world is much smaller compared to the overall big picture. And that Jesus has control of every molecule in that water and the air. That's a model of negative faith. Peter didn't have faith twice in a row. Now a model of positive faith. A centurion came to Jesus and said, my servant has become paralyzed and is in an excruciating pain back at my house. Oh yeah, I, I, I did arrows. Because, you know, I, I did the drawing and I thought, they're not going to get it. I'll just label. All right, so a centurion says my... My servant uh, needs to be healed. And uh, Jesus replied, I'll come there to heal him. And the centurion said, you don't need to come to my house. All you need to do is speak and he'll be healed. And then he gives part of an argument and stops. He says, I tell my soldiers to do something and they do it. There he stops. The rest is just an elaboration on that. There's nothing more there. I tell my soldiers to do something and they do it. Just as I have the power over my soldiers so that I can tell them something and they obey me, so you, Jesus, have powers over the molecules of my servant's body so you can tell them to do something, those molecules to do something, and they'll mix around and so my servant won't be in pain. That's what he's saying. And Jesus gets it. You have this perspective that things aren't as they might appear. I have this kind of power, this rule over the world, even over the molecules in, my serv in your servant's body. Jesus said, I haven't found anyone with such faith in this whole country. 
That's what faith is. It's believing that this world, it's, it's having this perspective that the world is a small part of the big picture that's under the power of God. And then Jesus said, Jesus gives a partial argument just like the centurion did. Many will try to rejoin my kingdom, or many will try to join my kingdom, but they will not be invited. And he stops. And you can extend the argument, but you, centurion, you will be. Your faith has given you an invitation to the kingdom. Jesus said to the centurion, go home, it will be done according to your faith. You can have faith that Jesus can control the molecules in a person's body, but it not necessarily be done. And Jesus is saying, here it will be done. So based on this scriptural evidence and the, and the philosophy stuff before, faith is a perspective. Perspective on the world. According to which our limited experience of the world is part of a much more bigger and important reality. And it's a reality where God is the ultimate authority and everything's value is oriented toward the fulfillment of God's mission. There is a larger kingdom out here, and the earth is but a small part of it. We are God's workers here on earth as part of something much bigger. And seeing things like this, having this perspective, is faith. When you have this perspective, you have purpose. You're given purpose according to the larger whole. When you have this perspective, that you have this purpose. You are set free. You're not set free from work, but you are set free from the burden of trying to create your own meaning and purpose in the world. It's given to you. You're set free from the attachments to the things that you might have, the concern about things that you might have in the world. And now you're given a larger purpose according to which you should see the things in the world. This world is like Mario's world. We should look at it from the outside and see it as smart part of a bigger purpose, part of a bigger whole. And when we do, some things in this world we won't care about. They'll be a lot less valuable to us in the same way that the lines of the basketball court are less valuable when you see the basketball court in a different way for a different purpose. Here we have in Hebrews 11.1 1, a description of faith. It's not a definition. It's a description of some things that faith does. It's what underlines things hoped for and what brings to light things unseen. Let's talk about the brings to light things that are unseen first. Um, some translations say evidence for things unseen. Um, it's more appropriately uh, brings to light or shows something unseen. Another scriptural passage is in which this term is used, this term elikos. It's used to show, uh, you say, uh, when a brother sins, you go to him and bring to light um, his misdeeds. Um, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead bring them to light, that elikos, that same term. Uh, John 3.20, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into light for fear that his deeds will be elikos, exposed, brought to light. So here it's a bringing to light. Faith is what brings to light things unseen. When you have this perspective of the kingdom and with the world, this material stuff is a small part, then all of a sudden you are more open to seeing the things that you don't see with your physical eyes. 
And faith is what underlies things hoped for. Now, hope here is not just a wish that has some positive affect to it. It's not like, oh, I really hope so. The hope here is the hope that doesn't disappoint. It's the hope that's based on God's promises. When God promises something, then you hope for that. And that promise, that hope, is built on, God's, built on your trust of God. So the hope here is more like trust. Faith itself is not the trust. Faith is the thing that supports the trust. Because you see the world as one in which God will fulfill God's promises. And that's why Abraham, who lived according to God's promise, and Noah and Joseph were all commended in the same chapter because God made promises to them and they saw the world as one in which God was fulfilling God's promises and willing to do things that looked really odd. Leave your home country and everything that you knew and all the security. Build an ark before there's any water whatsoever. Those things seem really odd, but people are willing to do it because they saw the bigger picture and the earth is but a small part of it. Faith is not just believing a doctrine or pray, having prayed a prayer or being a good person or engaging in spiritual disciplines. You can do all those things just patching them on to a normal life where, where you see this is all there is. You can do all the, you can just add on to, if you think this world is all there is, you can just add some prayer. You can add some spiritual disciplines. You can go to church. You can do things that other people tell you are great. But that's not what faith is. Faith is a changing of a perspective. So that's what faith is. Now, how do we live by it? Some scriptural passages. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world. It's an idea of having things brought to light, things exposed by seeing things in a much different way. Walk as children of the light. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, your mind is opening up to seeing things in a much different way according to this new perspective that is faith. So how do we live by it? I've got three ways we can live by it. Number one, do others see you as different? Here in the picture is a German boy who made a kite out of German marks. Marks are German currency. Imagine someone making a kite out of $10 bills or $1 bills. You'd see it pretty unusual. And other people see it as different. They think it's odd. I mean, if you looked at this world and valued things much differently from other people, then they would think you're a little weird for having done so. And I don't mean fake it, right? I don't mean, do others see you as different because you're faking it? I mean, once you see the world in this kind of way, and if you behave this way, one way to indicate that you're successfully doing that is that other people start to wonder, what is this person after? This person gives away their money? What? Are they just doing it to be seen well? This person is giving away all their time and doing this for me? I don't get it. If you are a Christian, Christians, you're a stranger on earth, and this is not your home. Your citizenship is in heaven. This is not your permanent home. You are adopted as sons by the Father. That's where your home is. That's where you belong. 
this right here, this is a temporary assignment. You are in the world, you are not of it. You are to be transformed so that you see things in light of your citizenship in heaven, not on the earth. Your work here on earth is to be a representative of God, an ambassador of your father, to represent your father well, according to the work and mission he has set forth for you. That is your commission. You are working for the person who demonstrated that they have power over the greatest power on earth, death. Death is something that it puts an end to anybody's accomplishments, and no one has ever brought themselves back from it except for one person. And that is to show you that you can be allied to that person, and they will give you the power to do this. They will give you the power to fulfill your mission. If you see this wor the world this way, how, much, how important is money? How important is social rank, your rank at work? How important is your stuff? How important is it that people like your social media posts, your TikToks, your Instagrams, your snaps? Everything's important is subsumed under the fact that you are here to work as an ambassador for Christ. You are given the things on earth as a workplace loan. They are not yours. They are, your, they are God's. How are you going to use them? Here are some indicators that you're not living by faith at that time. Do you complain? People complain because they feel like things should go their way. But we're not here for things to go our way. We're here to roll with the punches, to be able to be an ambassador no, no matter what the situation is. What about gossip? People gossip because they feel superior to others, so they talk badly about them. But we're not here, here to feel superior to anybody else. We can, in fact, be inferior and still do our work. We're here to unite people together for a common purpose. Do you judge other people? We are not here to judge other people. Judging is to exert social pressure and shame on other people in order to manipulate them into doing what we think they ought to do. But we're not here to do that. We're here to bring insight to other people, to model for them a kind of behavior that they will think to be odd, but will be strangely attractive until they see it and get the insight that God gives them, until they have faith. Envy. Envy is when other people have something that we want, and so we are angry at those people for having those things. But what do they have that we could want? What do they have that we should want? You can, you can do everything you need to do as a worker for God, whatever station you have in life. God has given you everything that you need. Holding on to our possessions their workplace loan, trying to fit in as if we belong in this world. Do you see how all of these sorts of things that are given to us in the Bible for how we ought to live are based on this larger perspective about what the purpose of, of our lives even is? 
This is why we need to do everything without complaining or excusing ourselves from the task. And by this, we mean the mission of God, what God has told us to do, to be a representative or ambassador or worker for God in this world. We should do it without complaining or making excuses so that we can show ourselves to hit the mark. Now, sin, by the way, the word for sin, harmartia, literally means missing the mark. It's as if we are an archer aiming at the middle of a target and we miss it. That's what sin is. So if you are acting for God's mission and you fail, you are missing the mark. That is sin. Sin is not acting according to God's mission for us here on earth. And if you're aiming at a completely different target, your own pleasure or personal satisfaction, you're going to miss that mark. So we need to show ourselves to hit the mark as children of God above reasonable accusations. Remember, people are going to think what we're doing is different. They might talk. Among those who swerve from the mark and hide what they could be reasonably accused of doing. And by doing so, you'll appear as lights in the world. If anyone's in Christ, they are created anew. It's a new kind of life. It's not a patchwork kind of thing. Old things pass away, the new have come. We are ambassadors for Christ as though Christ were acting through us. All right, that's number one. Number two, during your lows, where's your focus? Remember, Peter was really afraid he was going to die. Where was his focus? His focus wasn't on what God's mission was and how he should respond to it. His focus was on self-preservation. The centurion obviously cared about his servant. That's why the centurion traveled so far to see Jesus and ask Jesus to heal his servant. When the centurion's servant was in pain, what did the centurion do? He went to God. Because God was in power. He saw God as having the power. There will be problems. But our temporary problems are producing for us an eternal glory beyond any comparison. We do not focus on the things that are seen, but those that are unseen. That, that is to have faith. The things we can see are temporary, but the things we cannot see are eternal. And one last thing before I conclude. This is the third one. How do we spend our time? Here we have people hoarding rice in the picture. Do we spend our time on our own pleasure, our own comforts? Do we spend our time securing our own pleasure and comforts for ourselves? In the parable of the talents that Jesus gave, um, a master gave three people different talents. He gave one person five, another person two, and another person one based on their abilities, he says. And the person with five returned five talents. The person with two returned two talents. And the person with one, here's what he said. Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seeds. You took things that I don't think belonged to you, is what that servant said. And the master said, you wicked and slothful servant. The master's response was this. It is not okay to live your life with what I give you if I'm in charch. Sorry, it's not a way. You shouldn't live your life 
on your own as you want to. If I'm in charge, I've entrusted you with my money. You are responsible for returning it to me. And the message is supposed to be that we are entrusted with things that God has given us. We are responsible to use it effectively, not just for our own. And the servant also said, if you're mad at me, you still need to do what I told you to do. What about storing up for ourselves things that are going to secure a future? Uh, there was a rich man who had a whole bunch of more grain. And he said, to, he said, what should I do? I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take it life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then, you will, get what you, then will you get what you have prepared for yourself? The person who had a lot of stuff was focused on himself. I'm going to secure for myself a future so I can relax now. And the message there is that we should use what we've been given more effectively, not for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of the kingdom. If we really see the world from the outside, we should see ourselves as acting for the kingdom. Fix your perspective, your faith, on Jesus who created and completes our faith. He endured death on a cross with joy and was exalted. He endured hostility, and by fixing your perspective on Jesus, you will neither grow weary nor lose heart. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, as we leave, please help us to keep this perspective from the outside. Please help us to see the things on earth from the perspective of the kingdom. Please help us to see our time and our possessions in use, in service for the kingdom. Please help us to see ourselves as representatives and ambassadors for Christ in everything we do. Please help us to reorient our lives if we need to, to create a new vision if we need to, transform our mind. Please help us to love you and to love other people. Thank you for everyone who's here today, both here and online. And please help us to go forth and represent you well. Amen. Thank you, everyone. You are dismissed.